on this handout is an article that came out of um, this week's U.S. News and World Report. And I want you to, by next week, I want you to just look at this article and take a pen or pencil and go through it sentence by sentence and see if you can spot how many places in this article that evolution is, is, is um, the matrix in which the whole thing is discussed. Um, the, the idea here is to show that the other side um, in society, the unbelieving side, is projecting at all times a worldview. And it doesn't make any difference whether they're talking about arithmetic or they're talking about falling in love, as in this article. It's always enmeshed inside this frame of reference. And it's a, it's, a, it's a game of agenda that we really, we Christians really need to master because of what C.S. Lewis had said years ago. Um, one of the things he said was that I might not be one to Hinduism by reading a book on Hinduism, but if every book that I read on every other subject was written from a Hindu perspective, I might very well become a Hindu. And the whole point is, that whose framework is controlling it? So, we'll talk about that uh, after we open in prayer, but uh, just to introduce this article, why, why we're handing it out, is that I would like you to read it and just mark it up, because next week we're going to just discuss this article, and we're going to discuss it in the eyes of uh, the frame of reference, and we're going to think about the agenda. Um, maybe it'll help to think about, uh, if you think about interior decorating, you know, you, you might have a theme in your living room or your dining room or something, and it may be light blue, it might be green. But just think of it when you have a theme of interior decorating. You carry that color theme through everything. And it doesn't mean everything's green in the room. It means you may have this, you know, you may have dishes, you may have painted woodwork, whatever it is, you may have rugs, um, carpeting, but it all blends together. That's the whole point of the interior decoration, to make it uh, make a theme through all the things. So whether you're looking at the carpet, whether you're looking at the walls, whether you're looking at the curtains, whether you're looking at uh, knickknacks in that room, they carry through the theme. Well, that's exactly the whole thing about worldviews. Worldviews are like uh, an interior decorating theme. They carry through everything. And I've never read an article in the last year that is so blatantly uh, and, and explicitly carrying through a worldview. So you ought to be able to find sentence after sentence after sentence in this article um, that what you want to do is, is not necessarily challenge all the facts. I mean, the, the facts may be debatable in the article that they're talking about the subject of why people fall in love. But... Um, what you want to look for is, is something about how those facts are set into a context of an evolutionary worldview. And in particular, as you work through this article, um, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, you'll come uh, to the end on page 48, in the back of it, and you'll notice there's a second article a little micro-article. And it's, it's from the feminist perspective. 
Now, it really is a humorous thing if you, if you, if you can empathize with a mess that the evolutionary worldview leads to. When you get to the second article, here the feminists are protesting the ethical results of the evolutionary worldview, and they themselves are evolutionists. And it, it's interesting to watch the game that, that unfolds here. I thought I almost burst out laughing when I saw this thing because it was so silly that they go through this article giving you this worldview, then they don't like the ethical conclusion, which basically is if, if all of us are hormones in action, stimulus response, then what's wrong with rape? Well, nobody wants that. Well, that's right. But it's your worldview that led to that. So it's an excellent article for some training. So we want to take next Thursday night and we want to train on applying this overall worldview and the framework. So that's why tonight we're going to spend some time going back, reviewing the basics that we come over the last three or four years, and then catch up to where we are in the death of Christ. So the next week we'll be ready to go. Let's uh, stop for a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that you have opened our eyes and our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that it was not our merit. We did not deserve it. We do not deserve salvation now. But it was through your grace that you chose to make a way of salvation, that whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved, that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is complete. It doesn't need any additions by us, but it needs to be received by us by faith. And we thank you for calling us and opening our eyes to his work. In his name, amen. Okay, um, we want to remember that the point of our Thursday night classes is that this is not a class in biblical exegesis. This is not, to, that's, that's a whole other approach, to stay up and go ver through verse by verse by verse. This is not a class, a uh, devotional class. But this class is a framework class to emphasize the coherence of scripture and history. Because over the years, I've noticed that Christians who are weak in this area tend to cave in very rapidly when they, when they face uh, assaults on their faith. Even though they may, they may know verses and so on, they just can't put them together. So that's what this class is all about, trying to put it together. So. The, the, the scriptures are seen as internally consistent, one with the other, and externally sufficient to interpret anything that you encounter in life or history. So we want to go and think about the, the classic envelopment. Remember, we always emphasize that no matter what the subject is, that it is always being enveloped by someone's agenda in some way, shape, or form. And this deals with the issue of a framework, a frame of reference that people use. And because we know the scriptures to be true, that there's a battle going on for our hearts and our minds, that Satan is the deceiver and has been a liar from the beginning. He is the author of many frameworks all of which 
have as a common denominator the insulation of the creature from the creator. And he wants to accomplish this to avoid responsibility. And so, over the years, we've, we've gone through, and all of this plays an, a role in this, in this article. So this is why I'm kind of going over this stuff. And, and if you, it seems um, uh, repetitious to you, just, just maybe jog in the, in the margins of the article some of these points so you can see them play out. I'm, I'm worried that sometimes we go over this and it's abstract, it's general, it's, it's, not, co it's not specific. So that's what we want to do. We want to make sure that we see this play out in actual, actual cases. This is an actual major uh, media publication, major article, goes into millions and millions of homes, and millions and millions of people sit there, glassy-eyed, reading this, saying, ooh, this is good stuff, and walk away completely brainwashed by, by this approach. Um, we've said again and again that there's basically, from the scriptural point of view, there's only two kinds of worldviews. That's not to say there's not 8,000 versions. It's to say that in, in their heart, in their most basic level, there are only two worldviews. And that you should breathe a sigh of relief because if you master the basics, you don't have to learn 8,000 worldviews. All you have to do is look at the basics. All you need to know is really two different worldviews. And everything else fits into these categories. All the cults of the world, all the alien philosophies, all the pagan views, and so forth, fit. Okay, what we're talking about here, as we said again and again, is the difference between the creator-creature, this view being that of the Bible, based on... God creating the universe. First verse of Scripture. Easy to remember. In the beginning, God created. And that's fundamental. It colors everything else from that point forward. That's why evolution is not a trivial conversation. That's why it's not a superficial issue. It's a very basic issue because it gets into the origins of everything. So we start with a creator-creature distinction. And the Bible is the only place that has this distinction. Hinduism doesn't have this distinction. Um, Buddhism doesn't have this distinction. Pagan Greek mythology doesn't have this distinction. This distinction, historically, if you go back in history, you'll only find it connected to the Bible. I mean, this should say something. Say, the Bible was, couldn't have been assembled from these other things because the other pagan views don't have this idea. This idea is only found in Scripture. So we have ancient monotheism, Pieces of that from the sons of Noah as they went out and populated the continents, they, Noah preached a monotheism. And it was remembered here and there. And as the lights went out, tribe after tribe after tribe, as, as sin got a hold of, uh, of man's perceptions, and this gradually faded from history. Uh, and, and today, uh, probably exists very rarely, either because the missionaries have then gone into these areas and taught them scripture, so now it's not ancient monotheism, it's the monotheism that came from the Bible directly. This monotheism came indirectly as a memory of what Noah and his sons passed on. Ancient Israel believed this view, the Bible carries this view, and today, fundamentalism, that is, Orthodox Christianity, harping back to a constant biblical base, 
believes this view. Modern theology doesn't. Modern theology doesn't hold. They may use the word create a creature, but they're not using it the same way the scripture is. Then on the right side, here's ancient mythologies, Eastern religions, Western philosophy, modern theology, who hold to this continuity of being. And you remember what the continuity of being is? What it's just saying is that the whole universe is all there is, and that you can talk about gods, you can talk about men, you can talk about animals, you can talk about plants, you can talk about all these different things that exist, but they're made up of the same basic material. So the gods and men differ only in degree, not in kind. And think of the mythologies that you've heard about. Hercules, and you've heard about uh, Zeus, and you've heard about uh, Jupiter, and so on in, in the mythologies. And uh, you read about how they propagate with human beings and produce these half-human, half-divine offspring. Well, they're obviously able to reproduce, so they're obviously material entities. So that's what we mean by continuity of being, and that you can transmute, that is, you can go from the God to man to animal, from animal to man to God. And evolution is just a modern version of this transmutation idea that ancient paganism believed in. Darwin didn't start evolution. It's just a late, it's a Johnny-come-lately way of arranging scientific observations. Okay, so that's the deal. Now, what's important is, look at the bottom. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a purpose, there's a sneaky little purpose to, to the agenda here. The agenda on the right here impersonal fate and chance is the ultimate force. Well, if that's the ultimate force, then why am I responsible? How can I be responsible to an impersonal fate or sheer chance? And the answer is I can't be. So therefore, what we're saying is that learn to ask basic probing questions. And the basic probing question of a worldview is what does it ultimately mean to my life? If I consciously and enthusiastically embrace this worldview, what does it do for me? Where does it put me in the scheme of things? The Bible says it puts me in the scheme of things as a creature who is, is responsible to a personal sovereign God. And therefore, the ultimate responsibility exists. But on the other hand, if impersonal fate and chance is the ultimate backdrop, then instead of being responsible, what am I? I'm a passive victim. So that's at the root of this. So when you read the article, just keep thinking to yourself, if I adapt this position, where is it going to lead me with regard to my responsibility? Okay. Then we, we moved forward in time, and I want to relate this to the most recent uh, thing that we've done on, on the life of Christ, but I want to show you and remind us all that it's interconnected. We started out years ago, several years ago with the first four events of Scripture, creation, the fall, the flood, and the covenant. And these encompass the first 11 chapters of our Bibles. And we call that the Noahic Bible. Why do we call it the Noahic Bible? Because this material was known by every tribe on earth. 
when Noah and the family repopulated and recolonized the planet after the global catastrophe, every tribe and every language and every continent ultimately came from Noah and Noah's sons and daughters. If they did, then they did not have total ignorance of the Word of God. They had this as a family tradition. So we call this the Noahic family tradition. Everybody was in one time in their distant family. If you took your, world, you took your personal family tree and you pushed it back, you would go back to one of the sons of Noah and one of his daughters-in-law. And so what would happen is that you would then, in your ancient ancestors, they knew this truth. Now, what they did with it, subsequently, is an issue of their own personal history. They might chose to reject it, they may chose to suppress it, they may have chosen to pervert it, but at one time they knew it. So at the root of all of these subcultures and people groups, you have this basic truth. And those of you, of course, who studied a little bit of mythology and you've studied a little bit of, of animism and some of the ancient religions, you know that there, there exist in these myths stories about floods. You know there exists in these myths stories about a great garden and that there were the story that evil came in somehow. In some cases, it's like the Greek mythology of Pandora. The lady, and Pandora was a lady, and she opened Pandora's box. And from Pandora's box came all the evil of the world. And we use that expression in our language today. And it's Pandora's box for chaos. Who opened Pandora's box? Well, Pandora did. And who was Pandora? She's a memory of Eve. And what is Pandora's box? The fall. So all of, these, all of this early history goes back to these four events. Now, the Bible... And, and we, we emphasize this, and we'll emphasize it again because we want to remember this. If you take the Bible, and this is why I'm such a great believer in reading the Bible against its contemporary history. I believe every student should do this. I believe the way to train people is to take the Genesis text and take the mythology and put them like this. And have everybody read the Bible and have everybody read the mythology. I don't, we're not suppressing the non-Christian. We're welcoming a discussion of the two points of view. And when you do this, think of what you're doing. You're like a doctor who is examining a normal patient and one with a pathological disease. My son's going to medical school. And one of the interesting things this particular medical school has first-year medical students do is do physical exams on real models. And the reason for this, I mean, he called up one time and he said, I've got to give a physical exam tomorrow. I was wondering why he's quiet on the phone. Um, and it was embarrassing for him to have to do that. But everybody in the class had to do this. And they pay these models to be examined by medical students six times an hour for all day long. That's an interesting job. Um, but the, the medical school's reason for doing this, instead of using dummies, the reason they do this is very serious. They want those students from the very first day of medical school to understand what a normal human body looks like so when they see somebody with an abnormality, they'll spot it. And that's a great teaching device.
Well, what we want to do when we go to Scripture is the same thing. What we want to do is remember this is the normative, true picture. And when we take these pagan religions... Tommy, do we have the base on? I mean, it has a life of its own <laughs> over there. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether you can do anything about it or not, but it's coming out of those Wagner sound systems. Um, the, the, the point is that you can, if, if you say that this document represents what really happened, that is the Bible, and Pandora's box, or Zeus, or one of the uh, Olympic legends is, is butted up against it, what does this represent then? This represents, how is this related to this? It's related to this in that it's a perversion of this. So myths need to be understood as a perversion of the scriptures. That's why the myths do have parallels with the scripture, because there are some parts that are still there, unperverted. But there's a lot of garbage in them because of the perversion process. Now let's ask one further question. And this is a revealing one. What is the process that causes the perversion? If I do an observation of Genesis 1 to 11 and I'm reading another, you know, a pagan religion, and I see them side by side and I say, oh, oh, I see the difference. I see the difference. I see, you know, here's Eve, and, and Eve has reality in the scriptural narrative, but then I read Pandora, and, and I read the stories about this box, and it doesn't tell me where the box came from, and strange things go on, and so on. But, but the idea is, what caused Eve to be transformed into Pandora? What was that process? That process was sin at work in the human heart. So you see, you can learn an awful lot by comparative literature if you use the Scripture and think of it as what, what God the Holy Spirit has preserved from our in, insipid uh, uh, pathological tendency to pervert. The Scriptures have been preserved as a beacon and a light. And all everything else is what the best that man can do. This is what we do with the truth. So when you measure the difference between the Genesis text and these pagan religions, the difference, you know, three minus, five minus two, the difference between them, the contrast, is what sin does in a human being's mind. And it teaches us, if you want to study in human psychology, this is a fantastic tool, because it tells us what our flesh wants to do. That's what our flesh wants to do with the truth. So this whole first section that we've talked about several years back, this whole section of the framework is there as a foundation. And when we went over it, you remember, we had a title for it. We said, it's the buried foundation. Now that's somewhat ambiguous because it's buried in a sense, literally, geologically, that whole era is buried. But it's also buried psychologically in the soul of every human being. That there's a residue of truth there because Romans 1 says so. All men know God exists and they suppress it. So if you could dig down, a la Sigmund Freud, and if we could dig down into, into the depths of the subconscious, we would find that the memory is still there. And it's that 
according to Romans, that condemns all people, whether or not they have personally heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference whether they've heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as to their basic responsibility before God. Because no man, no woman, can ever claim to not know the truth, the minimal amount of truth, to hold them ultimately responsible. So that's, that's the first part. And out of that basic foundation, and why it's a foundation, is because of the great truths that are connected to all those events. Those events shape our ideas and doctrines of God, man, and nature. The whole vocabulary of who God is, who the world, what the world is, who man is. And watch this for the article. One of the critical differences in our point of view is the difference between man and nature. Now you, just, you might want to write that one down. That's an observation that you want to check as you read this article. Be sensitive to if you didn't know the scriptures and you hadn't thought about the difference between man and nature, what would you see to be that difference if you just read the article and nothing else? How would you look at that difference? So that's something that we learned from this early buried foundation. Then we learned with the fall, we learned another thing about the responsibility. We learned from the fall this whole issue of evil. And we can't get enough of that either because that's going to be an issue. As I said, at the end of this article, there's a secondary article and they have to deal with this problem. They, don't have a, they, don't have a pro, they, they have a problem with evil. That's why I've encountered this. You see again and again, who has the real evil problem? We as Christians are said to have oh, a problem with your evil. How can a good God let all these evil things happen? Well, the answer from the pagan point of view is, why are you bothered? If evil is normal, then what's your problem? It's all part of the grand scheme. Death, suffering, sorrow. It's always going to be there. Always has been. It's just part of existence. And the more thoughtful pagans over the time have put the yin-yang symbol... That one is taken from the Korean flag, but the yin-yang symbol is known throughout the Orient. And it's good and evil. It's black and white. It's the two colors. And it's, it's carried over, not necessarily badly, but in food. In the Oriental food, the sweet and the sour. The yin and the yang. But it's a way of looking at life. And, and this is the way of looking at good and evil. And the ultimately uh, only option you have outside of the scripture is this one that good and evil must be mixed forever and ever and ever, never to be separated. Now, isn't that a hopeless lookout? I mean, who's got the problem here? The scriptures say God has never been evil. From infinity past to infinity future, God is always good. What has happened is he created creation. When it left his hands, what did he declare creation? Last verses of Genesis 1... Behold, it is very good. So everything God made was very good when it left his fingertips. Subsequently, we have the creature rebel against God and introduce sin. But the key issue to remember is the gap between the time it left God's fingertips and the time the creatures rebel. We don't know the details of that. 
The Bible says uh, Satan was a, was a great and brilliant being until it says sin was found in you. Adam and Eve had fellowship with God until the day of their fall. And then God entered the garden. And you remember, what did they do? They did something they never did the day before, the day before that, or the day before that. They ran and they hid. And that simple picture of the fall is a picture of our hearts. That ultimately, the flesh fears God's presence. We hide behind whatever we can hide behind. And speaking of hiding behind, what function does the pagan worldview do? It gives us something to hide behind. Why? Because by hiding inside a pagan worldview, you can delude yourself into thinking, I no longer am responsible. And if I'm no longer responsible, I don't have any fear anymore. Well, actually we do. It's just that we've, we've squashed it. We've submerged it. Deep down in our souls, it's still there. It's not going to go away. On Judgment Day, the tape recording comes out. The videotape is here. It was here all along. You might have thought you, you, you crunched it, but no, you didn't. It testifies against us. So, that's the ultimate game that's being played out. The Bible alone gives hope. What's the hope? That good and evil be separated. And how is good and evil to be separated? Remember? Judgment. So, ironically, the very thing that people object most to in the Christian religion, the heaven, the hell, and the judgment, that's exactly what gives the hope. Because that is what guarantees that evil will be dealt with permanently and forever. Well, I don't like that. Well, then you've got another solution to the problem. How are you going to separate good and evil? Ultimately, I would rather live in a good-evil universe than ever face judgment. That's what, the, what unbelief says. When we harden our hearts against God's Word, we're saying we like to take the pain. We'll take the pain, we'll take the death, we'll take the sorrow, we'll take all the disease, we'll take all the package, as long as I never have to come before the throne of God. I prefer cancer to God's grace. Now, isn't that a stupid proposition? But in the, in the essence, that's the nature of unbelief. Give me hell, then give me responsibility before God. Okay, we moved on and said, after the flood, God allowed the human civilization to develop. And when that civilization developed, it developed, of course, sinfully. And it wasn't long before God began to judge that. And we come to this period of time from Genesis chapter 12 on down through the end of the period of uh, David, 2 Samuel, so from Genesis 12 to 2 Samuel, we go through this framework, carefully done in sequence. God is the great pedagogue. God teaches. History is His story. And His story is that of a lesson plan. God is a great teacher. When Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate, spoke to people, he was the most eloquent teacher. 
He always tailored the lesson to the person he was talking to. He had one kind of approach to the woman at the well. He had another kind of approach to the Pharisees. He had another kind of approach to Thomas. He had another approach to Peter. But it was always the same truth, tailored exactly to whatever soul it was that was the pupil of the moment. Well, God has a pedagogical class plan for history. He sequences historic events. This is critical when we get into prophecy. And why? There's a coherent view to Scripture. There's not, history has a revelatory function. He, God doesn't reveal this before He reveals this. Lesson one comes before lesson three. Now let's look at how that teaches us to view Scripture and Bible doctrine. First, what does God do? In all of this, how does God start the ball rolling? Well, what we said was, He starts it as a disruption. The Bible is a story of disruption of sinful civilization. Today, when uh, we are obviously, as Christian community, being peripheralized socially, probably ostracized in many cases, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised as we will encounter civil uh, persecution shortly through the legal system of this country. When the Boy Scouts can't have uh, their own rules how to run the Boy Scouts, but they have to be dictated to by some half-wing lawyers telling them what they can and cannot do when they've never given a penny to the Boy Scouts, never helped them out, never participate with them, but they have the audacity to tell the Boy Scouts how they're going to run the show. And if I ran the Boy Scouts and they told me that, I'd say, all right, you want to judge that, and that's the result of this courtroom, then I disband the Boy Scouts as of now. That's the answer to that one. So you people just keep pushing, and that's what you're going to get. We just shut the whole thing down, and everybody suffers. So the whole point is here that God disrupts. The scriptures are disruptive, and that's why Christians and us, we're going to be looked upon as the people that are always causing the problem. We are the people who are that, that, those extremists. You can't compromise with them. You can't negotiate with these people. They have their own agenda. They're going to have their own agenda come hell or high water. They won't listen to the lawyers. They won't listen to the courts. They just do their own thing all the time. They won't respect Caesar. Well, yes, we do respect Caesar. As long as Caesar respects Jesus Christ. It's Christ first, then Caesar. And it's the scripture first. So that's why we call this the disruptive kingdom. And if you want to study the disruption, that's what Genesis 12 through Samuel is doing. Let's think about the disruption. First, let's look at the call of Abraham. What did we find with the call of Abraham? Well, we found that God picked the, picked the guy out from everybody else. Oh, how mean. You mean God didn't call for an election? God didn't call for the ballots? God didn't ask a human race for some feedback. He didn't run a Gallup poll before he set up his kingdom. No. No. He just did it himself. The message came down from this way. It didn't go up. It came down. God said, I pick Abraham and that's how I'm going to start. And that's called the doctrine of election. And that's terribly disruptive. That's not the, the human election. That's God's sovereign election. And if there's not anything, think of this now, disruption. 
What could be more disruptive than to have an interfering sovereign God come down from his kingdom and his throne and say, I want it this way. Everybody want it this way. This way it's going to be. Huh? Well, what right do you have to tell me it's going to be this? I have to be God. So the whole kingdom of the Old Testament starts out with the doctrine of election. God elects Abraham and he chooses the way of salvation. Then justification by faith. How could Abraham be justified to enter into a contract? Remember what we said? In the scriptures, you have to think of, approach all of the scripture in terms of contractual agreements. And here's man, and here is God, and the scriptures say the basis of this agreement is a contract. The Bible calls them covenants, but it's contracts for us. How can a holy, righteous God enter into fellowship with somebody in this dirty world that's being disrupted? So the dilemma immediately arises as how can God, who is holy, righteous, and just, enter into a covenant agreement with a sinner? And the answer is the biblical doctrine of justification, that Abraham was justified or made holy or made righteous somehow. Somehow. It doesn't go into how. It just says he was, and Abraham accepted it by faith. Now, what does that get rid of immediately, right from, right from day one? What does that tell you about the structure of the kingdom and human works? Can't, human works don't enter into it. What works could a sinner do to earn merit with God? Can't do that. And we have people today that still think they come into the churches, they get alienated, they get ticked off when they talk, hear the gospel preached, and people say there's only one way of salvation, and we don't care how many good works you did, but it's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, period, over and out. And you mean, oh, the, the works that I did don't, that's right. Well, well I don't like that. I'm going to go to another church. Well, fine. Problem is that two plus two is still four. And God is still holy. And it is the height of arrogance to think that Abraham, and his, he has little two and a half good works, is going to walk into God's throne room and get, uh, order the doors to be opened automatically. Garage door opens because we have two and a half good works. doesn't work that way. So at the beginning of history, we have this situation where a contract is made. It can't be made between a holy God and a sinner unless the sin problem is resolved. And the sin problem is resolved at that point in time by faith. Abraham trust the Lord to provide the righteousness. He doesn't know it's going to come from the cross of Christ. He doesn't know the details of the incarnation. He doesn't know there's going to be a Messiah. He has no knowledge of this whatsoever. But as far as salvation goes, he doesn't have to know that. He just has to trust that God will supply the righteousness. Then we come to the Exodus. And what are we saying? Is this a disruptive kingdom or not? Ask Pharaoh. Think it disrupted his life for a while? Sure did. It totally tubed the world power of the time. And the Exodus, after the call of Abraham, the Exodus reveals something else, doesn't it? What was the basis that separated the Egyptian houses that were destroyed 
that had a death of a firstborn and the Jewish homes that did not have a death of a, of a firstborn. What one element made the difference? Their wealth? Even their race? Because, by the way, there's no restriction. Egyptian could have done what the Jews did, put blood on the door. It was not racial. It was not socioeconomic. It was not any of those differences. But in the Exodus, part of the mystery that Abraham might not have grasped begins to show up. Blood atonement. That's somehow related to how God's going to provide this righteousness. Blood atonement. Now think about when we get up to the cross of Christ. We've been talking about Jesus Christ in the last few months. And we've talked about the fact that his cross is misunderstood, unappreciated, re-explained. If people just went back here, what is this talking about? Blood atonement. You've got to have blood atonement. Gee, I wonder why Christ died on the cross. It's all interconnected and interrelated. People should not have a problem with the theology of the New Testament if they would just pay attention to the theology of the Old Testament. Guess what? They sit together. Oh. All right, we come to the third great event in history, Mount Sinai. Now, after Mount Sinai, when that comes, guess what else God reveals? In the Exodus, He saves. He saves Israel. And what happens after salvation? Then comes a knowledge of God's will. Then comes the issue of obedience to His will. You don't see Mount Sinai up here and then the Exodus, do you? You see the Exodus first and then Mount Sinai. Well, then what does that tell us about the law, obedience, and salvation? It tells us that the issue of obedience to the law comes after. It's an issue between the Lord and the saved individual as to whether that saved individual is going to get with a program or suffer discipline. It's all post-salvation thing. Then we come to the conquest and settlement. After the Christian is saved, after we are exposed to the will of God, what happens when we begin in our lifetime to carry out the will of God? And we're obedient here, we're obedient here, we're disobedient in these other areas, but we're at least obedient over here and over here and we try to live a consistent life there, what then happens to our lives? Boom. We begin to be disruptive personally. Either in first in our own sin patterns, they begin to get disrupted, and sometimes those who live around us begin to get disrupted because they don't like the new priority scheme here. And exactly what happened to Israel. In the family of nations, they began to be disruptive. And finally, of course, we have the rise and reign of David, which is revelatory of what leadership looks like in God's kingdom. You have to have a king to have a kingdom. And so God begins to teach, through historical experience, what to look forward to in one day the Messiah. See, the rise of the monarchy is the vehicle of revelation of the rise of the Messiah. The Messiah and the monarchy are tied together. That's why Jesus, remember we studied one of his titles? What's one of his titles? Son of, Son of God. And where does that come from? Psalm 2. And what is Psalm 2 written about? The monarchy. And it's looking forward to the ideal king. Why do we have the story of David as a sinner? Because it's to show that the kingdom, 
must have a king who is perfect. And a human king doesn't cut the mustard here. We're all fallen. And that's where you get a lot of political doctrine out of Scripture. It never ceases to amaze me how irritated the liberal press get when they insinuate that the Christian community is so narrow-minded because they have this, these political ideas about limited government and all the rest of it, and we don't see why they have to have this belief, and they should be more open-minded and pass on to, you know, to the, to the uh, uh, other, other people in the community uh, and let them have their say. Well... What do we learn back here about government? The classic political chapter in the Bible. If you want to quote one chapter in the Bible, that's the political chapter to quote, is go back in the first few chapters of Samuel, when Samuel establishes the monarchy. And he says certain things about government in those chapters. In chapter 4, chapter 6, 7, and 8, up in that area. That's where you find your political doctrine of Scripture. And it's all grounded on basic truths. Okay. Now, we come down to the end of the Old Testament, preparatory to the rise of Christ, and we find the collapse of that sinful society. The leadership was sinful, and the people were sinful, and the kingdom collapsed in judgment. And so we have a story of this struggle, and what is it? It parallels our struggle. That's why those Old Testament stories are so necessary because they give your mind rich imagery. You can dream about those stories. You can project yourself into the middle of them. You can learn about sanctification and its heartaches and its struggles and its victories and the joyful times and the sad times because those stories are all there to show the interaction between God's kingdom and the sinful world. And we're still interacting. Then we come, of course, to the time of Christ. And all this, part of the frame of reference. And when we come to Jesus Christ, what did we know? We said that the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is, starting off with his birth. The birth... for years ago in the, in the First Baptist Church or Calvary Baptist Church in New York City said that God contracted the infinite God of the universe contracted down to the size of a woman's womb. Amazing story. And what it means is that man and this is another thing by the way relative to the story the article we're going to read this week another little truth to watch is the incarnation teaches something about man and woman, just man corporately here. That man's form, man's form, his faculties, his purposes are the only creature in the spectrum of all created beings, including primates all the way down to the amoeba, that was designed for the incarnation. God did not, contrary to pagan religions, incarnate himself as a falcon. He did not incarnate himself as a lion, the Assyrians, the falcon uh, in, in Egypt. God did not incarnate himself zoomorphically. That means in animal form. God incarnated himself 
anthropomorphically in man. And he deeply and profoundly rejects any worship of any form of himself. It's a violation of the second commandment. But he incarnated himself in man and in man alone. So that tells you that man is designed in his biology as well as his psychology to be a finite version of God himself. Jesus had five fingers on each hand like we do. He had toenails like we do. I mean, think of that. That's the God of the universe who walked around and felt stones on the bottom of the sandals. A God of the universe who ate, who drank water and walked around and was one of us. He didn't come as a Martian or some fifth dimensional creature from an outer galaxy. It's planet Earth with this creature called man that was the vehicle of the incarnation. And so that tells us that all the form, all the faculties, and all the purposes of man is to reveal God. As nothing else in the universe can reveal God. The ultimate revelation of God wasn't in his handiwork, though that's revelatory. The ultimate revelation of God is in man, in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read the article, think about this. And think that if you were to work out the worldview of that author, authors, what would you have to then conclude about this? What does this article do radically different about man? Remember I said earlier, a few moments ago, I said the difference is between man and nature. What does evolution want to do with that difference? Anybody? What does evolution's effect? It blurs the distinction, right? Why, we're made of the same genetic materials that the animals are. Well, the greatest cathedrals in the world are made of the same kind of bricks as a lowly house. But that doesn't make the house equal to the cathedral, does it? Because the bricks are arranged by information and ideas into a different form. So yeah, in our material substance, we're made of uh, biochemistry. Yes, we're made of material atoms. And yes, the amoeba is related to material atoms, but we're not the same. There's a new set of information that arranges all this in a different form. Information from outside. The architect has imposed his pattern. Man is different from nature. Okay, that's the lesson of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the agenda that we learned is that unbelief rejects this. Remember? Always remember Every one of these events comes under attack. And from the day that Jesus Christ was born, what was the Jewish party line about the virgin birth? Mary fornicated with a Roman soldier. That was the party line. And when the Gentiles, down through church history, got a hold of it, well, we never saw a virgin birth. No scientific evidence of virgin birth. So they can't be one. So the virgin birth comes under attack. Why, though? Why are those claims hostile? Why are they being made? It goes back to the first slide of the evening. I want to create a universe 
in which I am not ultimately responsible. And I will resort to any perversion of the truth that I possibly can to convince myself and my peers that it's safe to walk around in sin. We are safe from judgment. And we'll distort our own design, lowering ourselves to this subhuman level, believing that we're not primates that lost our hair, just to avoid this ultimate responsibility before God. So then we move down to the life of Christ. And the life of Christ reveals God. And the issue against the life of Christ was what? Well, the Jewish party line was that Christ violated the Jewish norms and standards. The guy went out and he talked with women in the public square. Don't do that. Rabbis don't do that. They'll let some uh, woman who uh, come in and undo her hair and wipe his feet. I mean, come on. That's not the proper behavior for a rabbi. And what do the Gentiles do later on in church history? Why, this is just church spin. These are the spin doctors. The apostles were good old spin boys. They put this whole story together about this Jewish carpenter Jesus. And then the church later on added some more stuff to it and some more stuff to it, and we get this Christ guy. It's just a myth, just a spin. The real Jesus, and then you'll see Time Magazine, U.S. News and Report, you know, at Christmas time, two weeks before Christmas, you'll have a big article, Will the Real Jesus Stand Up, Please? And we're always looking for the real Jesus, like the New Testament doesn't give the real Jesus, because the New Testament is a spin on the thing. That's unbelief. Why do we want to get rid of the real biblical Jesus? It makes us responsible. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. We can't have a person like that walking around the planet. And now we've been on the death of Christ. And that brings us up to where we left off before the holidays. The death of Christ solves the sin problem through what? Restitution of divine justice. And wrapped up in the whole issue of the cross is the issue of what is justice. The Jews said, look, anybody that dies on the cross is a criminal worthy of capital punishment. Your Messiah, the guy was a criminal. I mean, you know, he's like a guy who gets electrocuted. And you, you're worshipping this guy? He's a, he's a capital crime guy. But in the irony of that rejoinder, there's a truth, isn't it? Jesus Christ was judged. But the difference is, this was a man who paid for our crimes, not his. And it was a real punishment. The Lord Jesus Christ died for you, and he died for me. He died as a criminal, but he wasn't the criminal. The criminality, the criminal charges were transferred to him, and he died as a criminal, but he wasn't the criminal. So, there's an irony to that. But today, in our modern life, what do we say about the cross? It's now opposed. He didn't really die to save anyone. Jesus died as a martyr. You know, there are lots of martyrs in history. 
Uh, we, we look at the cross of Jesus, and, you know, it's inspiring. We believe that he might have died. There might have been a Jesus around. You know, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe there really was a guy like that. And, you know, he got people ticked off, and he was politically incorrect, and he paid a price for it. And, gee, you know, I'm inspired because he was a man of his convictions. <laughs> Lots of people are man of convictions. But that's the explanation for the cross. So we can get rid of the birth... We can get rid of the life. We can get rid of the death. Makes you wonder who the real spin doctors are, don't Well, I hope you can go through this week in this article and think about this concept, that the Bible has a coherence to it. And you touch one part of the Bible, and you touch all of it. And we've outlined the last 60 minutes, we've outlined the major themes that we've studied so far in Scripture. Take those major themes and use them as yardsticks on this, on this article. And keep in mind that this is not a personal attack on the authors of the article, because they're deceived. It's not that we hate the authors of the article. They're people like you and me, just like all of us before we were saved. They're people in whom the God of darkness has blinded their minds, lest they believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Read the article with that in mind. We're not attacking the people who wrote the article. We are on our guard against the God of this world, the evil one, who deceives people into thinking that way. And we don't want that thinking in our heads. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you have preserved down through the centuries. For the Holy Spirit, who has opened our hearts to the content of those scriptures. For the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Who fought against the evil one and endured and was victorious. And who now reigns at the right hand and who shall come again. We thank you all the way back to the point of creation. We didn't have to create, but you did create and bring us into existence. And we give you the honor and the respect that we should as creatures toward the Creator. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have a few minutes here, uh, maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and I'd like to uh, entertain questions and uh, any discussion that you'd like to get on to. Yes. I was watching a program with Larry James called Search of the Heart of Jesus. And of course they have all these Bible scholars come in there and they want to sort of coach it from every angle. And I I I I find it interesting because mm -hmm. It's really amazing um, what 
these guys come up with. I mean, you've got 800 different basic things to talk about in Scripture, and they've got to worry about some off-the-wall thing like, gee, with a wedding at Cana, Jesus' wedding. Well, it wasn't Jesus' wedding because Jesus was single and, and that, all throughout the whole Gospels. Now, embarrassing to Roman Catholicism is the fact that Peter was married and um, Jesus had brothers and sisters and so on, you know. Um, but uh, it goes back to just you have only one of two choices. You stay with the text or you drift aimlessly about doing anything you want to. Any speculation. Your own wedding, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you know what? Just Debbie, Debbie just demonstrated that you know. Just read the text, and and these guys just want, are they reading the same text I am? You know what is the problem here with these guys? They had a years ago. There was a guy that wrote a book called The Passover Plot, as Schoenfield, and he had the idea that the Passover plot was this plot that the disciples and Jesus got together with, and it went awry the last minute, and Jesus accidentally got killed. But it was never intended to be that. It was just. And you know what's so interesting about that particular book is that the witness of a plan at work in the Gospels is so powerful that even this unbelieving scholar, when he tried to deal with it, had to call it the Passover plot. In other words, there wasn't a coherence to this drama. So he has to explain the coherence. But it's like I always say, the, the motto of the unbelieving scholar is, we don't, know, we don't know everything now, but we know one thing. It isn't the way the Bible says it is. We know that for sure. Don't know anything else for sure, but we know for sure that John didn't write John the real Jesus isn't what the Jesus of the scriptures are, and so on and so on. Yeah. 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 James. James. Well, there's apocryphal texts. There are apocryphal texts. There's old. Uh, there's there's a what we call apocryphal texts are these texts that have floated around the first century, and they purport to tell stories about Jesus when he was a child. And, and it fills in, you know, it, it caters to people's desire to know more about Jesus. And then he went to India and the Gospel of Thomas and, and so on. You know, the, the problem is the Holy Spirit led the church to recognize what was canonical scripture and what wasn't. 
Remember we studied the canon here, the revelation, inspiration, canon? And in the canon, the Holy Spirit led the church, we believe, to do that. Because as believers, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And how could we hear if we didn't have Scripture preserved? So we believe the Holy Spirit not only created the canon of Scripture, but he preserved the historic text down through years. And, and um, you know, the, the people say, oh, well, it's this manuscript and that manuscript. Look, come on. When you go to the manuscript variation in the time of Jesus, you should see the manuscript variations. You think we got a problem with the King James versus something else. You should have seen the mess they had in the first century. They had five or six different versions, all of them all kinds all over the wall. Uh, but apparently Jesus and the apostles didn't think too much of it because they, they quoted three or four of them and just went on from there. The simple reason being that the Holy Spirit can communicate through varying texts. Why not? It's language, isn't it? And what's the problem here? So, yes. I agree with you, George, but I, I, I prefer to phrase the problem rather than say that he, that the God of this world wants to get us on sideline issues. I prefer to maybe make it a little more active and say that what he wants to do is pervert our understanding of any issue. For example, in this article you read about certain biological things about the male and the female body and the interaction between them. Now that involves profound areas of biochemistry that we're not, I'm not qualified to talk about, but I know some people in Creation Research Society are very qualified. In fact, there's a new book out on the design of the human body from ICR. It's tremendous. And so when, say, for example, we discuss a certain hormone Rather than say that's a peripheral issue, which I know what you're getting at, what, what Satan does is he sets that subject material, that is, say, the hormone, and he wraps it up into a worldview where it's understood a totally different way than it would be understood as someone who thought in a biblical worldview. Both of us are talking about the same thing. And far from being a peripheral issue, um, I know one of my sons who who just looks at DNA structures for Johns Hopkins for, for several years, and he would just come home sometimes and say, you know, that is amazing. Because he knew the designer. And he enjoyed looking at those structures. And one of the most... most I, I remember this conversation, because I don't know anything about biochemistry. It's an area of science I never got into. Uh, 
And I asked him for a book on it, and I got a big, thick 500-page book that he said, Daddy, read that, and you'll, you'll understand some of the basics. Well, when I get time. Um, but one of the neat things, just a little thing, it sounds like a little side issue, but to me, George, it's not a side issue. God's creation is so phenomenally revelatory of him that you can talk about neat little things and they redound to his glory. Like the discussion we had one time was, I had this naive view about DNA that as you go through the DNA structure, this is the section for your ear, this is the section for your nose, this is the section for your leg, and so on. He said, no, that's not right. That's not right. It said, your, the instructions for your ear formation, some of them are here, some are here, some are here, and some are over here. And I said, what? That sounds chaotic. And he said, no, that's not chaotic. Because if there's damage in the DNA, it won't damage your whole ear. Now, see, that's a little, little tiny detail, isn't it? But it's not a peripheral detail when you can enter into this enjoyably and view it as the work of our God, our Creator. It's exciting. You know, he made that. Think of what he did in the Genesis 2. When the Bible, in such mundane, common language, has God reaching down and, and dealing, getting the sand. But Jesus, if we could just see that in that instant that he was dealing with the sand, all these little molecules going zip, 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 boom, 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 here we go. And the whole blueprint of our bodies was created like that. See? And so there's little details. Sort of like, I imagine you, George, you work with software. And... You know, I would imagine there are times when you work with a program and you get into one or two little instructions in that program and you think, gee, you know, those, that's pretty neat what that instruction is doing. So it's not the size of the issue. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's the context of the issue. And that's always the way it is. And that's what is infuriating about this article when I read it, was that here we're talking about something, you know, why people fall in love. It's a good topic. And my goodness, you can't get... By the time you wade through the first four paragraphs, I have never had my, my boots stick to the goo as I've waded through four paragraphs with more junk in it about evolution. I mean, the guy can't even talk about a nose without talking about evolution. If this guy had a lesson on how to brush your teeth, it would be in terms of what the primates did eight million years ago. This is, this is how it's embedded. But don't you see a little bit of difference whenever the Bible is brought up? I mean, when we're talking about creation and anything outside of the Bible specifically, when the, when the context is not... Oh, absolutely. ...the conversation about the Bible, then, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and that's absolutely true. But it seems to me, like, in this situation, when they get a panel of people discussing the Bible, they, they, they get really whacked out about it. Um, as, as if to, to get into these, these little issues of, you know, rather than bringing into the, to the, you know, a piece of text that really needs something, like the 800 issues that you were talking about that are basically. Um, but, you know, I, I just thought of something that's probably interesting. That if the five panel member of the um, FCC, if the three had their way, Separation of, of cultural, educational, and religious broadcasting, guarantee you that 
that discussion that we saw would be considered educational and could be viewed. Yeah. But when Charles Stanley got on there to preach on Christ, that would be religious. Yeah, it wouldn't be educational. Right. right. It wouldn't be educational. Yeah. That's what's so phony about what I, what I can't stand about the modern environment and the law. The, the legal, the, the treatment of law and the interpretation of law is as phony as the, as the interpretation of literature in our school system. Both communities, the English teachers and the law community, the legal community, resort to these hollow, technical, context-divorced ways of looking at these terms. And they're, they're playing this game of abstraction. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous, in your example, that this five-panel would be educational and Charles Stanley's not. Now, how, how, the subject material is the same. It's talking about the Bible. So how do you distinguish in content between one and the other? It gets back to the fact that I guess one of the I have a friend of mine, uh, Tommy Ice, who he has a gift that I just don't have, and it's the ability to sit down and debate with these people and kind of laugh at, enjoy it while he's doing it, and um, that's the way he does. I mean, he sits there and he has a good old time with them, and they just get so irritated that Tommy's enjoying it, you know. Um, But one of the things that um, that he likes to use when he gets into these situations. He said, he'll look at them and he'll say something like, and I think this is a humorous, we have to kind of, we have to develop, uh, I think, sometimes a humor, because humor is a nasty way of, of, of sneaking stuff in. And Tommy, at one point, this guy was going on about this thing, and he came back and he says, well, you know, we got to watch out for, for the, for the, the, uh, 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 the uh, undermining literature and the dangerous stuff out there. And uh, the guy thought that Tommy meant censorship because he knew Tommy was a fundamentalist and he thought, oh, this guy's he's after censorship. No, no, he says, we believe in all literature. So Tommy kept pushing him, you know, pretending he was talking about censorship. And the guy was disagreeing with him. We have, have an open book. Every, every piece of literature should be considered. Well, you know where Tommy was going with this, see. And he says, well, he says, I, I don't think you really mean that because, you know, I'm thinking of a real dangerous book. Now, I mean one that really, really upsets people. Oh, I believe in reading everything. I believe that we should have that. <laughs> but that's the thing, see? And, and you, I, I guess we have to learn to laugh with it because it, in, in one sense we can get too depressed and you get too upset by it. You just got to learn to back off and, and there's a humor in it. 
And God has a sense of humor in the Old Testament. You know, he laughs. So, so. Okay, folks, well, next week we'll... Uh, oh, yes. Oh, too bad. It's a picture. Glorification too. Yeah, yeah. You could say that. You could say that. Um, it's just that what I try to do in there is that the the Davidic life, the struggles of David, the Psalms are so often used by us when we read the Psalms of the struggles of the Christian life. So that's what I was thinking about. But yeah, you could see the glorification as long as you condition it with it is a type, and like all types. It's not a perfect type, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but that's that. The glorification come in in the fact that he is a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Okay.